This is the Portland Real Estate Podcast, your number one place for anything you need to know about the Portland real estate market, along with in-depth interviews from our local real estate industry experts. Now, without further ado, here are our hosts, Tucker Merrihue from TTM Development Company and Steve Nassar from Premier Property Group. All right, welcome back, everybody. This is episode 62 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. We are back. We had a couple weeks off, but as I've told you before, me and Steve actually have businesses that we have to run, and you know, sometimes that just takes precedent over hitting the microphone. But we do have an amazing show for you this week. We got a great guest on, but before we get into that, Steve-O, what's happening, man? Hey, good to be back on. Yeah, actually, we to be fair, we were ready to come on the show last week, but our guest, our wonderful guest today... Got sick in the 11th hour, so she was feeling a little under the weather, and we had to give her a little bit more time so that she could power through a show. We've got her here today. Well, I think it'll be uh, absolutely worth the wait. Nonetheless, why don't you introduce our guest and let everybody know who it is that we're going to be chatting with today. Yeah, so excited to have, you know, actually you brought this on, you put this on my radar, Tucker, to be fair, you had kind of forwarded me an email and said, hey, what about having her on the show and the second you sent that to me, a couple things. First of all, she's an amazing, amazing resource. And second of all, we've never done a show on 1031 exchanges, which are an incredibly important part of the real estate process. And so I thought it was a great idea and something we had totally you know, not really thought about prior. Our guest today is Toya Butler with Butler Exchange Group. She's right here on Meadows Road, just, I don't know, half block or so down the street from my office. I first ran into Toya. She did a class about five years ago. I, it was a uh, class that I think Cheryl Clunas had put on, and she and who, by the way, puts on some great some great events and classes, and usually brings in some good content. And I was really impressed with everything Toya had to say. And from that point forward, anytime I would have questions, I saved her in my contacts. I would send clients to her, get her on the phone. She's always incredibly knowledgeable, probably the most knowledgeable person I know with regards to 1031 exchanges. So Toya, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve and Tucker. My pleasure to be joining you today. My favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. In fact, I was joking here just a second ago off the air that Toya eats, breathes, and sleeps 1031 exchanges. In fact, it's in her phone number. Her last four digits of her phone number, I think it's her landline, her her office phone, is 1031. That's right. That was not easy to get, I'll tell you. (laughs) No, I was going to say, that'd be near impossible to get today. So That's right. (laughs) So Yeah. So, Toya, tell us a little bit about, well, you know, let's just take it from on a high, high level. Tell us, you know, the volume of business you're seeing today. I have guesses, by the way, but the volume of business you're seeing today, say, compared to even five years ago when I first met you in 2013 or 12, what are you seeing in as far as the amount of 1031 exchanges? Exactly. So about five years ago, we were thrilled, just thrilled when we were setting up 30, 40 exchanges a month. You know, the bottom for us was 2010, and there were some very bad months in there, but about five years ago, things were getting better, and we would set up 30, 35, 40 exchanges a month. You know, January, 25. Well, this year, as beyond anything that I imagined, we set up in my office, and you know there's other exchange companies, so they're doing 
I don't know, similar, I suppose. We set up in January 71 new exchanges. So January 71, in February 80, and in March, over 90. So it's just been at a crazy level in what is normally a quiet time of the year for us. Chance for us to catch up and clean up things in the office, not this year. And it's just continuing to, we think we'll be hitting some months this year with 100, 110. And those for us, of course, are 100 sales. There will be 100 purchases. So we're talking at least 200 transactions. So it's an unbelievable level of activity right now. Yeah, yeah, that was going to be my guess, that it was high, that it was yeah. much, much higher. What do you see as the typical exchanges? I mean, your average garden variety, is it detached to detached? Is it detached to multi? I mean, what right. would you say? Right. So historically, about three quarters of our work has been residential rentals, single family to single family, single family to duplex, one to four units. Right now, because our residential market is as tight as it is, we're running about half residential transactions. And of course, we do handle exchanges of commercial properties as well. That's probably about another half of our work. But typically, the vast majority of what we're seeing are folks selling a single family rental here in Portland to buy a single family rental in a location they prefer or at the coast or Sun River. So it's mostly one to four unit. Typically, three quarters of our work is that type of property. Yeah. And you know what? Most of our listeners are, are pretty well-educated realtors, but I should probably just have you really quickly remind, you know, maybe some of our newer agents out there or maybe even non-agents, what a 1031 exchange is. So if we look at the residential transaction, the primary reason for a 1031 exchange is the seller is selling a property. They've owned it for many years. They have capital gain. The property is appreciated and that is capital gain income. If they are selling the rental property, just selling it outright, they're going to have to pay tax on the gain in that property as well. Because it's been a rental, they've been able to take depreciation, which is a great advantage in owning residential rentals, commercial properties, is that annual depreciation deduction. If they just sell, they have to pay tax on the gain and recapture the depreciation. If they don't want to pay tax on that, then what they can do, working with the brokers, working with us, following a bunch of rules, buy a replacement property. Now, the gain in the old property doesn't go away. It's just transferred into the new property, deferred. And so we move the gain into the new property, and the depreciation deductions are all in the new property. Why that's an advantage to our client is, first of all, they don't pay the tax. Secondly, because they retain their cash, it gives them a larger down payment, to get into that larger replacement property, it, cash flows better, rents are better, depreciation opportunity is greater. There's a lot of secondary tax benefits, but it's usually preserving their cash to leverage in to the bigger and better. And our younger investors really utilize 1031 as a means to grow their investment real estate portfolio into the bigger and better, not paying the tax now, not paying the tax later not paying it in future, exchange, exchange, exchange into the bigger and better. So Toya, on the bigger and better, if you're selling a $300,000 house, you automatically have to transfer it into a, is it $301,000 house? Is it $300,001? And, well, yeah. Or can it be two homes that are 200000 So I like the third option, two homes that are 200000 love that. Uh, the technical answer, being an attorney, and I didn't say, but I'm a real estate attorney, 25 years doing this work only. 
the technical answer is that 300,000 sale, your client can deduct your commissions and closing costs. So maybe we net to 280. So 280 is their sweet spot. They can buy one property for 280, two properties for 200,000 apiece. We can buy a million dollar property if their equity will get them there. I want to say this too, that while 280 is the sweet spot, if your client finds a perfect property for 270, they can buy that. It's a good partial exchange. If they're targeting 280, we buy at 270, they just pay tax on the $10,000 shortfall. So partial exchange, we see those quite frequently as well. Mm, that's interesting. So I've got a, I've got a curveball for you, Toya. That's, yes. uh, so we had a buyer that just closed a week ago Monday. We built two townhomes in first edition and they're, you know, first edition like us, we go obviously very high dollar when we're talking townhomes. They were eight, $800,000 townhomes. So definitely not cheap by any stretch. Now, the gal who bought it, very nice lady, she owned some property in Washington that was just dirt. And it was a partnership between her and, and a couple other folks that I think was family. But anyway, they sold the dirt. Her portion of the proceeds was $800,000. And so she basically took the 800 grand and she rolled it via 1031 exchange into now an actual income producing townhome in terms of rent. But she bought a townhome from dirt. And I didn't think that you could do that. And so I actually had to call her facilitating company and be like, hey, is this legit? But maybe you can elaborate on that a little more for me. Yeah. So there's the best rule of 1031. And there aren't any good rules that this one, frankly. All real estate is like kind with all other real estate, as long as what our client is selling is rental properties, commercial properties, or land held for investment. So the land she sold in Washington must have been held for investment. That works beautifully. Then what do we get to buy? Any of the three. So more land if she wanted, but that's not going to cash flow. We could buy a commercial building had she chosen, or we could buy the residential rentals. And so that is the best feature of 1031 is how generously defined like kind is. And it really helps our clients achieve these pretty terrific personal goals, rental income that she'll have now. Also business goals. I say business goals, the rental income could be personal because I always wonder if at some point in future, she might want to move into that townhome. I mean, that would yeah. be conceivable. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was part of the other side of it for her as well. That's right. How does that work, Toya? Yeah. So the IRS a few years ago came out with some guidance about that townhome, which we didn't have before. We knew it had to be a rental to be safe. We now know she needs to hold it as a rental 24 months. After that, all the rules and restrictions go away and she can, in fact, make it her primary residence and move right into it. And having moved into it doesn't trigger any tax obligation at all. She moves into it, makes it a primary residence. If at some point down the future, she decides she's selling her primary, she actually will have some tax obligation, but moving into it in and of itself does not trigger anything. It's a beautiful scenario, and probably about a third of what we do are people buying something that eventually will be either a primary or a second home. So love it. It's a great technique in that regard. It's a great technique to use for these like California buyers coming up here who yes. maybe they're a couple years away from retirement and they're wanting to start looking around and maybe buy something rented out for a couple years. Yeah. What a great strategy to, to be knowledgeable about and encourage them to utilize. That's right. And with just a bit of patience, they can make that work out so well. 
it's a great, great strategy and very popular. And the IRS knows that people have used 1031 for this purpose. And every once in a while, they get a bit bothered and they add another restriction or a little more seasoning, but they've never taken it away from us. So it's a great 1031 option. Toya, quick question for you. On the other side, what are the rules for occupancy? The one that they're selling? The I mean, same. as far as recent occupancy. Right. The same. So if a broker knows of a client that has, say, and I mentioned this earlier on, if a broker has a client that has a second home at the beach that they're done with, and they would really prefer to have a second home in Bend or Palm Springs or Phoenix or wherever, then 24 months, to be safe, 24 months before they list the beach property with the broker, they follow these rules about seasoning as rental. The actual rules for seasoning are that for the look-back period of 24 months, the beach property, they have to have had rental income, but only this, 14 days in the last 12 months, 14 days in the 12 months prior to that. So it's a very low bar for rental income, but their personal use is also very restricted. That too being 14 days they can vacation in the beach house in each of the two 12-month periods. Now, oftentimes our clients tell us they don't go there anymore other than to fix broken stuff. And those are not vacation days, those are work and they don't count toward the 14. But if any friends are wanting to use the property during the 24 months, any family wants to use whether or not they're paying rents, the use by friends and family comes out of the 14 often. So they've got to be very careful. We, as you said earlier, Steve, are happy to be a resource to people on those technical rules. Of course, our CPA would know them as well. But hmm. they've got to be real careful in that 24-month period prior to sale. Just out of curiosity, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because that's what I do, what's the bookkeeping look like for something like that? <laughs> well, exactly. Certainly, they have to show the 14 days of rental income on their tax return. That's an easy one. But okay. how's the IRS? See, there's always somebody asked, how's the IRS going to know? <laughs> it's always and somebody, right? <laughs> exactly. And I always appreciate that question. The IRS won't know unless they audit. And they see that that was a beautiful ocean view home for 750000 And they say, well, show us your utility bills. So the truth of the matter is, a real simple question like that with utility bills shows the meter foreign for a month in July who was in there with no rental income. And you find out it was the grandkids over there for the summer. So it's only in an audit that that would come to light. But hmm, gotcha. Theoretically, gotcha. it can be found. So hmm, that's the, yeah. that's where they go to the checks and balances part of it. Equally so, okay. enough, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So they've got to be careful. Hmm. But again, if you put a paintbrush in your hand or paintbrush in the grandkids' hands, may not yeah. make them paint while they're there. <laughs> yeah. See that now we're now we're thinking, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this, this you know, is that's why we uh, have Toya. I really like the idea that, you know, I guess all real estate is like real estate, right? In terms yeah. of, of doing the the exchange. Because I was really surprised that you could go from dirt to, you know, a townhome, but I guess now it makes a lot more sense to me in the way that you described it. Yeah, investment dirt. I have to say that builders and developers with dirt know. Somebody buys an oversized lot, carves it up into two parcels, you know, partitions. That dirt is considered inventory, not investment. But it sounds like your client and the family had held many years. That's investment, and that qualifies nicely. Yeah, and it was. so. Toya, tell us about reverse and improvement exchanges. I did a reverse exchange a few years back. I, I, it was a new experience for me. And and I know they're pretty few and far between. I, I haven't really come across them since, but tell us a little bit about those. Yeah, exactly. And particularly because of our current market where there's limited inventories 
and pricing is high and you've got a, you know, bidding wars over properties. Uh, we are holding conversations. Let's talk about reverse first. I personally am holding conversations four to five times a day about reverse exchanges. Well, what's a reverse? Your client wants to close on the replacement property first, then sell the old property. And you, the broker, have told them you can sell it. The old one will sell in a flash. They don't want you to sell that in a flash. And now they're in the 45 days in which they have to identify. We can talk about those rules later. They're faced with that 45-day window, and it's too short, and there are too many other buyers going for the same product. So your client wants to go out with you, shop around for the new property first. Then when they find that property, come back and sell the old. So you're going to go to a seller and say, hey, seller, we'd like to buy your property. Will you take a contingent offer? And that's when the seller says, no, thank you. And they refuse to go under contract with your client. So, but this is, and this is when this happens in reverse, that's the perfect property. It's the $800,000 townhome in first edition, and they cannot bear to lose that opportunity. So they are compelled to buy even before their sale has closed. And in theory, they can purchase first, the reverse exchange. Now, the reverse exchange is quite different, however, from a forward. In a forward exchange, when we're working with a client, our paperwork, we pretend to sell their old property. We pretend to buy. It's fiction. It's not real. And the fees are quite nominal, typically a total of $1,000, $750 on the sale, $250 on the purchase. In a reverse, there's no pretense. The IRS will let your client buy first, sell later. What they will not let your client do is be the actual owner of both properties at the same time. So what happens in a reverse is we, exchange company, ends up owning either the new or the old. Now, we don't care which. But there's quite a bit of discussion to explore which property will get parked with the exchange company. So we literally own something. The fees then are going to be higher. Our fee starts at 5000 to be the owner of a property, albeit temporarily. Now, reverse exchanges have the same time frame as a forward, 180 days. I can only own their property 180. But that's not a problem right now because you can get theirs sold and closed within our time frame. So reverse exchange, we end up buying. So when do we do reverse exchanges? It's when they have found the to die for property. The seller won't wait. They're not going to hold that property off the market for our client to get their sold. And there's enough gain in the property being sold to justify the additional expenses of a reverse. I said our fees $5,000. There are extra closing costs, et cetera, et cetera. The reverse fee, reverse exchange in total runs eight to $10,000 for a typical reverse exchange. There's no cookie cutter to these. So until we've had a thorough conversation, we don't know, will we own the new? Will we own the old? And once in a while, we run into roadblocks where we can't even get it structured for folks. So although I talk about them four to five times a day, we really only end up doing four to five a month. But with the very limited inventories, it's causing folks to explore that idea of buying first. Would you say the majority of the reverse exchanges where you do take ownership would be where you take it of the old property? Since I would imagine some of them are getting debt on the new one and it might be a problematic for you to take ownership of that if they are? Well, in fact, we more typically buy the replacement property because what do we have? A cash buyer coming up out of California that has a big pile of cash in the bank. And so we can go in and buy that replacement property all cash. We don't need financing. If we're talking a one to four unit residential, the only way I'm going to be in the middle of that is if it's cash 
purchase because the financing, Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae, won't let us be the owner of a property right. while there's a loan on it. So we usually own the replacement. And of course, we also handle commercial commercial properties. Those are fairly easily parked. The banks will allow us to be the owner temporarily while their loan is in place. We can always work that out with the commercial lenders. But more typically, we own the replacement property. And for other reasons, it's easier. But once in a while, you're right, we'll end up owning the old property where there might be a loan. But we're not going to call and tell the lender that their borrower has just transferred the property to us. So we take it subject to the existing financing. Yeah, okay. And that's what I was getting at. And that, that makes sense if you've got yeah. clients that are just parking cash for the time being until they can sell their other asset and then basically replace yeah, that cash. So yeah. Exactly. So to, to be clear, the client has to not only have the equity in the property, but they need to have the equivalent amount of cash so that they can use that park yeah. it with you, sell the other, and then give you that cash. And, or I probably Well, here's didn't. how, I mean, it's hard to make sense of, and I was reluctant to get into that, but here's how it works. <laughs> it's okay. All right, I dug us into a hole here. Yeah. Just, yeah, no, don't no, go I'm there. Sure. <laughs> I can go there. And it's a critical piece of structuring reverse exchanges that people don't anticipate. Ideally, their down payment for the new property is uh, approximates the equity in the old. So as it had today, a client with a property with 500,000, the property they're gonna sell free and clear for 500. Then if we're gonna do a reverse, I need them to upfront, while that equity is still tied up in the property, they need to come in with a down payment on the new property for 500 or more. So if they have that kind of cash to work with, then here's what happens. When we go to purchase the new property with their 500 down payment, I give them a promissory note. I pretend that they loaned me that down payment. I give them a promissory note for 500. So when the sale closes later and I get that 500,000 of cash, what am I going to do with it? Use it to pay back my client the loan they upfronted to us. If they only have a down payment of 100 and I've got, and they've got equity in the old of 500, I can only give them a note for 100. When I get the 500, I'll pay them back the 100 they loaned me, but I've still got $400,000 left over. Here's what your client expects. They expect I'll take that 400 and pay down their loan on their property if they're owning the replacement. They want me to put that 400 toward the new loan. I can't do that. For me to pay down their debt on their new property, it's not like kind. It's debt relief I'm getting for them. In this structure we're describing, I would be the owner of the old. So I got 400,000 left over. What am I going to do? Buy them a second property? Well, fine, if they want a second, but if all they want is this one property, then somehow they need to scrape up a down payment of 500, not 100. So I have a mechanism for using that cash that comes later. Hmm. Not Interesting. easy. Yeah. Not easy. Yeah. You can see why we call you Toya. <laughs> yeah. Somebody called me today and said, tell me how to structure a reverse exchange. I said, there isn't one way to do it. There's many, many ways. They're all custom. Anyway, yeah. Yeah. So that's the reverse exchange. Now, Makes you a little creativity. Yeah, just no, never a dull moment in our office. <laughs> yeah. What are improvement exchanges? You talked about that here recently, and I, I'd never heard of one of those. Right. Now, those we talk about a little less, once, to, once or twice a day, and we do one to two a month. A reverse exchange is where my client is wanting to utilize sale proceeds to not only buy the replacement property, but to also renovate or new construction. They want to use those dollars to add value to the replacement property. There's many motivators for that. 
but there's many examples of that. I will explain what I've got going right now. Uh, we've got a number of properties where we, so back up, the IRS will let us make those improvements as part of the exchange. Two tricks. First of all, our client cannot be the owner. Oh, this is going to sound familiar. Our client cannot be the owner of that new property while the work is taking place. So mm. like the reverse exchange, we end up owning the replacement property. So we use their monies to buy the replacement property. The seller deeds it to our company, not to our client. We create, of course, LLCs for this purpose. And now while I am the owner of the property, we then spend your client's money on the work. So we first have to be the owner. And the second trick is we only get 180 days to do whatever we're going to do. So examples of what we have going right now are particularly in Astoria and Ashland, where clients have gone in and picked up some of these older properties and they want to renovate them and bring them up to a higher you know, productivity. So we are the temporary owner of these houses in Ashland while the contractors are in there doing work. And likewise, the historic buildings in, in Astoria, while we own that commercial building, while the contractors are in there and we're, we're paying for the work out of the exchange account. Our client, while we own, whether it's a reverse or a forward, I mean, sorry, whether it's a reverse or an improvement, while we own the client's property, they still have full control. If there are tenants in the property, they get to collect and keep the rents. They're paying the mortgages, but we are the temporary owner in order to facilitate. So the improvement exchange, how much work can they get done within the 180? And is it enough work to justify the higher expense like a reverse exchange? Gotcha. So they've got 180 days to execute the construction, essentially. And that's, that's right. And the added value that you're creating needs to justify the additional expense plus the stress and timelines that you have to meet. Essentially. Right. I tend to tell people that for reverse or improvement exchanges, they only make sense if we can shelter at least 100000 because they've got all these expenses they pay for those. $100,000 of construction, $100,000 sheltered with the reverse. Then these strategies can make financial sense. Okay. I've got another curveball for you because this yes. is one that I've been thinking about personally. So. There comes a point with, you know, single family rentals, right? If they're not incredibly, well, it, I guess it doesn't matter on, on price so much, but there comes a point where you can only take so much depreciation, right? And then you, right. you, need, to, you need to pull the, the, the cord and say, I need to roll this because I can no longer take any more depreciation or my depreciation clock's ticking. So let's put it into something else. Is that something that you see a lot with people where they're, or are they kind of ahead of the game and just kind of market specific on selling? Or do you see more people that are like, hey, I got to get this sold and roll it because I'm not getting full depreciation anymore? Right. Uh, it's a conversation that we hold fairly frequently. And this is important to understand about the 1031. You'll recall, uh, recall that I said the gain in the old is now in the new. The depreciation schedule in the old is now in the new. So if we sell a $300,000 property that's fully depreciated and we buy a $300,000 property, it too will have been fully depreciated by virtue of the 1031. So if our client is saying to us over the phone that they need to get their depreciation going again, then they can't go straight across in a 1031. We sell for 300, we wanna buy for five or 600. It's the extra three or 300 or so that we paid for the new property. That's where we get depreciation opportunity again. So okay. frankly, this one, this is an example of when they should talk to their accountant. Sometimes accountants will say, hey, Joe, you're better off just selling and paying your tax. Now, when you go out and buy your new property for 300, you can start over again. If it's 1031, we don't get the new start point for re recapture or for depreciation, rather. So 
it okay. is a discussion point, and 1031 isn't always as helpful as clients would have hoped. Gotcha. So you got to buy up in a situation like yes. that or, or combine. What happens if you combine uh, like uh, two houses, right? Do you yeah. need to, you could go up, you know, significantly, but you still got the depreciation schedules on both of those houses that may be fully exhausted that you have to account for in the new purchase. Right. So exactly the same thing. And we do about a third of our files. Clients are selling multiples to buy one or selling one to buy multiples. So they absolutely can sell two to buy that one bigger, better property. They're usually leveraging up into something bigger, gives them something more to depreciate. The only real challenge in the sale of two to buy one, and you'll appreciate this, is timing. So when the first sale closes, we're locked in on our 180. You, the broker, got to get the second one to close, and then we're going to buy that replacement property. So I mean, we're going to, this is sort of a high level discussion today anyway. If somebody were to call our office, we'd roll up our sleeves and get very much deeper into the ideas. There's some other strategies, combining forward and reverse exchanges, but not for today. Theoretically, you're going to get the two to sell first, and then we buy that one bigger red or replacement property. But it, we do them all the time, but the pressure's on the broker to make that work out. Yeah, and that's uh, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, I'm some of these questions are self-serving, but it's a situation <laughs> that I that I've personally got, you know, going on. And I I think it makes sense to, you know, obviously I've got a few houses that I I need to look to sell at some point, but then, you know, like you said leveraging up into a much, you know, maybe a, a more of a commercial type property, right. you know, multi-unit that has more room for depreciation, something like that is uh, probably the way to go. Right. May I raise an idea too because we get especially when they're selling two to buy one, one of the things our clients don't always appreciate is then what is our target replacement property value to be? They're sometimes looking at those two smaller properties and they look at the equities. Well, I've got 200000 in each of those for equity, so I'm going to sell those two to buy one $400,000 property. And that is not the whole story. So if my client is selling two properties to buy the one replacement, we don't look at just the equity component in each sale. We also have to look at the loan amount, the outstanding balance. If there's debt against those two properties, in a 1031 exchange, we want to reinvest all of that equity into the new purchase. And our client, basic rule, is they need new debt on the replacement property of equal or greater. So it's the combination of reinvesting the cash and taking the payoff amounts on the loan, loans, plural, and going out and getting new debt of equal or greater. So it sometimes pushes them into larger properties than they thought they would go into. Yeah, so for maybe just to simplify it in a situation like I have where I've got a, let's say yes. two two houses, right? I've got a loan for about 150 on one and about 250 on the other. So yes. that's a combined 400K in debt. Uh, there's substantial equity in both beyond that, but I would have to, if I was buying into one, I'd have to at least go out and leverage into 400K worth of debt as well as rolling the equity into the next property. Precisely. You got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes clients lose sight of that. Yeah. No, that's an important point. So I'm glad, I'm glad I asked these questions. Yeah. Hey, I Toya. Oh, yes, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah. I have a, I have an interesting question for you with all the regulatory changes we've seen coming down with regards to landlord law and especially city of Portland, right. are you seeing people say, Hey, I want the heck out of residential. <laughs> oh, I want the heck out of Portland. And sometimes, yeah. That was, yeah, that <laughs> <way>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. Since January, we've been getting the calls. Um, they're selling and getting out of Portland and they're tending to go toward Washington County. I don't know if that's, you know, everybody, but 
They're all headed for Washington County. Now, the curious hmm. thing, of course, is if they're selling a duplex in Portland and getting out of Portland, well, somebody else is buying that duplex in Portland and they're still going to be in rentals. But we definitely have had an uptick in that conversation. Interesting. No Interesting. Well, I'm, and I'm also hearing now, isn't there something in the House or in legislation right now for the st- on the state level? Well, yes, that, that's right. I don't think it's passed yet. and I'm not I don't think land- so either. Yeah. So I'm not a landlord-tenant attorney, so I don't really know the ins and outs. But, I mean, if they pass it at the mm-hmm. state level, then it doesn't much matter whether you're in Lane County or Multnomah yeah. County looking yeah. at this. So we're keeping an eye on it. It certainly does affect thinking. Our clients might then be very motivated to get out of residential and go into commercial. So, and that yeah. would be like kind and fine. But again, our commercial market's pretty tight too. So, trying to find commercial properties that would work—that's not an easy task. It's interesting to hear you say that. Is uh, during this conversation, I realized that you're that conduit who would be hearing that. So, oh yes, and and, and you absolutely <laughs> validated what and we suspected. Say, yeah, I have to say too, one of our clients is on that lawsuit against the city. And I have more power to them. We'll see how that comes out. But yeah, let's chat about the requirements to use a 1031. Ah. You kind of mentioned, you know, there's a misconception out there that if you have a transaction that you're selling and and you're going to buy something and that if there's a misconception that if if they close simultaneously, somehow you don't need the 1031 exchange company. Talk to us about that. Right. And we've had a spate of those calls just recently. And although I've been lecturing on 1031 for a quarter of a century, for heaven's sakes, there's still somehow this belief that if your client can sell and buy fast enough, use the same title company, same closer, same day, that they don't need to pay the fees of an exchange company, which I think that's kind of a, you know, humorous because our fees are so nominal. But it is absolutely not the way 1031 works. They still have to have some formalities, and that's going to be the exchange company's paperwork in those closings. And I would tell you that we just in the last few weeks have seen an auditor with Department of Revenue over in Bend has managed to get the higher ups to fund a project where he is looking at 1031s because he believes that there's been some monkey business going on in there. And frankly, California went after 1031s a few years ago and they found monkey business. So this auditor out of Bend is looking at 1031s 2015. We've had a couple of clients whose CPAs contacted us on exchanges we handled. Not only did we have to, we should talk about identification rules. Not only did we have to provide the identification form in our file, but furthermore, the auditor was looking for the exchange agreement, the contract between us and our client to establish that we were in fact participating in the sale. So they're looking for folks who are trying to claim a 1031 without having utilized exchange company for that purpose. So it is just a fundamental requirement. If they don't want to pay tax on the gains, don't want to recapture depreciation, they have to pay for an exchange company. I say I love exchanges so much that I would do them for free. I just have two more daughters to get through college. Once they're out of school, I'll do them for free. But right now, we've got a fee to pay to be charged. Well, it sounds like the government's looking for the uh, the cheapskates well, that want to cut the corners, basically. So that's, that's right. And you have to know in our market that there's been some pretty tremendous gains in properties again. And oh, my so gosh. And so if they find people that haven't followed the rules, how nice is that? Payday for the auditor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So a caution that they simply have to have an exchange company. Even if it's a quick exchange, they still need us. Yeah. And mm-hmm. having gone through a full audit before from the IRS, I can say that, you know, if you give them a reason to look further, they look further. And if you don't, <laughs> you don't. So, All you right. Know. There we go. 
We want yeah. it clean. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, was there anything else on here, Steve, or Toya, is there something else that uh, maybe we missed on the list here that you think is important that maybe yeah. our listeners and us should know? Yeah, let's talk a little bit about the deadlines uh, and the identification requirements, because that is where these audits are taking place again, most typically. So the deadlines, I just tell people, they're carved in stone. When the sale of the relinquished closes, that's when the clock is ticking. 180 to close on the replacement. That works pretty well, unless we're talking new construction, and then things can get a little tight sometimes. But generally, 180 is fine. How do you deal with it if it is new construction, let's say, because we again, we had this situation and you're pushing up on it. Is there any form of extension that can be filed or is that just it and all be all? You're just stuck with the 180. Now we have a plan B. How do we deal with that? We would have we could have and we've done before is have an informal closing like a land sale contract where the the builder sells to my client under a land sale contract until construction is completed. But we do have to give the builder the money. There's a contract back for the differential. Once the builder finishes completions, you know, six weeks out, then my client goes in and does a refi, normal financing to complete the deal. We can go to a plan B, but somehow my client has to become the owner within the 180 or just fails utterly. It's a complete fail. If it goes, if it goes on day 181, you get complete. no tax benefit whatsoever. No tax, none whatsoever. Wow, that would be an uncomfortable day. (laughs) Yeah, right. We we don't want to see that. The only way we can get extensions in 1031 are in the event of a federally declared disaster. So we kind of need a hurricane or an earthquake or something horrible. So that's the only way. (laughs) That's 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 a lot of pressure. Is it the same with the 45 days to identify? It sure is. And that's the one that real that's the worst rule of 1031. The best is the like kind rule. The worst is the 45-day identification deadline, carved in stone, drop dead, do or die. And so at that point, my client, before midnight, must identify their replacement properties. We provide a form for this purpose. It has three blank lines because 95% of our people can only list three. And I'll tell you, I was up until 10.30 last night because it was a deadline for a client. I told them I'd watch until 9.30, but by 10 o'clock, I still didn't have their identification form. And so I'm sending emails saying, gentlemen, I need this by midnight. It comes through. And then the client realizes there's only two on the list. There's supposed to be third. So by 10.30, they finally got the third one on the list and through. It's do or die. And then they do have to buy from that list. And that is where California in particular found how often the exchange companies weren't requiring identification to them or we're allowing them to buy properties that weren't on the list, or one thing and another. So that is where most auditors go, is to the 45-day identification, not so much the exchange agreement typically, but look at that ID, look at the paper in the file, if there is a paper, look at the property purchased that better match up. And so that would be utter failure of the exchange. And I have to say, if we don't comply with that rule, and if we were caught buying a different property, we're not just utter failure of the exchange, but that's where we get into, hate to say this, Fraud penalties. Fraud. They do do. Yeah. Well, <laughs> way, way bad. So, and that's yeah. where the auditors are going these days. Mostly is that 45 because 45 is too short, obviously, in this market. So here's an interesting thought. You say it's the worst part. It can be the best part. <laughs> I had It can be the best part for a realtor. I had, it was about a year and a half ago. I think I talked about it on this podcast. I had some clients reach out to me. They lived here. The dad lived in California 
Dad was selling a $2.5 million apartment. He wanted to move the money up into Oregon. He was going to have his kids live in one and rent it. And then he was going to find two rental properties here. So I had 45 days to spend $2.5 million. That is a thing of beauty. (laughs) Yeah. You're right. That's that well. Down in California. So I didn't get to use you, Toya. But I I wasn't cursing that being the worst part of the exchange. Good point. <laughs> the deadline's holding their feet to the fire. They're not looky-loos, are they? <laughs> and they're cash buyers. I mean, how do you get better than that? Exactly. Well, and that's the thing for brokers who, if they're in a listing appointment, can spot the opportunity for a 1031. It's usually from the listing agent bro- perspective. If you can spot the opportunity in the listing appointment for a 1031, well, what is the opportunity? When you're taking the listing of something that is rental, commercial, or land, or if I may say, their own home where there's a rental unit, their own home, where there's a commercial, like the husband has a landscape business out back, or their own home sitting on acreage, investment land. So the broker, they can spot that opportunity in the listing appointment, raise the idea of a 1031 with the buyer, is more likely out there with that, I mean, out with the seller. They're more likely than with the seller out looking around Mm -hmm. for the replacement property and picking up the second commission. And as I mentioned, about a third of our files, there's one sale for two purchases or multiple sales for one purchase. So in third of my files, a broker on both ends is looking at three or more commissions. So the broker who's on the lookout, rental, commercial, land. That's Steve, I think you should have uh, Toya train your team members. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, Toya, so another question came up to me. So if somebody does a 1031 exchange with some type of rental property, and say they're trying to be strategic to buy something to move into mm-hmm. and then, and they do and they do it right and it's it's been a rental for 24 months and then they make they do the exchange and then they have it as a rental for 24 months and then they move into it now at any point do you start to go into the primary residence capital gains benefits or do you now forego those the whole 250 per per spouse after so many years. So if they bought a replacement property in a 1031, held it as rental two years, and then move into it as a primary, they do begin, eventually that property too will qualify as a primary residence. And so it's a great advantage to folks who do buy the $800,000 townhome in first edition, moving in there eventually. Now here's the thing, So many people were moving into these properties through 1031. As I said earlier, the IRS catches on. They slow our people down. They add some extra restrictions, but they've never taken it away. So yes, once they've lived in there for two years, it now becomes primary. Now, they can't sell it quite yet for their tax-free money. The IRS added another year. So if you bought that in a 1031, you have to own it a full five years before you can sell that tax-free. And now, so at the end of the fifth year, is when they can sell that property to take tax-free money. But with another change that we got a few years ago, it won't be all tax-free anymore, but some will be. So still Hmm. a great strategy. We have to talk to the client. Each client's scenario plays out differently. Some will be tax-free, some will be taxable. Uh, They'll still have the depreciation to recapture there too. We can't get them out from under that. But as a way to convert tax-deferred money into tax-free primary residence, 1031 is a good way to get them a property that they can do that with. Patience takes time and they'll still have some tax bill, but it can still work out pretty well as a partial tax-free treatment. 
Gotcha. But the depreciation, the depreciation always gets recaptured on something. It's always there. And let me explain. If they did hold this property for five years and sold it at the end of the fifth year, they have to create a fraction at the end of the fifth year. It's the number of years they own the property in this story, five. The top number of the fraction or the number of years it was a rental in our little story was two. So two fifths of the gain in that house is still taxable. But having moved in there for three years, three fifths of the gain is now tax free up to the 500,000. They won't ever get more than 500 anyway. But mm-hmm. two fifths taxable, three fifths tax free. But yes, the depreciation recapture is still sitting in there. But it's gotcha. not a bad strategy if our client's willing to play that out. Hmm. Interesting. We're buying a lot of properties and, you know, where are they going to retire to? And that'll be, you know, Bend or Maui or we're buying in Idaho right now for some. Oh, no, I'm from Idaho. I love Idaho, but they're buying in Idaho right now for some reason. Anyway, so something they'll eventually retire into can get them a great result long term. Interesting. Yeah. Anything else? Any uh, last words, Toya, in regards to best practices or what you're seeing work well or not work well? Yeah, um, just a couple of thoughts. So first, the ability of the broker to spot the opportunity, rental, commercial, or land. The other thing, as you said, Steve, and really it's the fun part of my life, my day, is being a resource for the brokers. You know the top tax attorneys, real estate attorneys, <laughs> business attorneys, CPAs call us on a daily basis. Take advantage of what's just right there in our head. They can go research it if they want, but they can call and get a fast answer from us. That's the fun part of our day is being a resource for anybody that has a 1031 question 1031 related again although i'm an attorney there's another attorney on staff we don't have billable hours we're not truly providing legal services so being a resource for folks we love doing that if they end up doing the exchange then that's when we're making fees the other thing i would mention steve and i don't know how you provide this information but on our website under 1031 tools it's www at you know dot butler exchange group.com Under our 1031 tools, I have a couple of checklists. One is the broker checklist, what your broker does to stay out of trouble. I could tell the war stories that cause they mean to create that. And then there's a second, and that's just a one-pager for the broker. There's a four-page checklist of what our client has to do to have a good exchange. That's much longer. But in terms of tools, keeping people on the path of a 1031, I think those tools have been very helpful. We put those in the hands of brokers and investors at every opportunity so they all know what they need to be doing we get a better result for clients if they have a checklist in front of them to start down so just want to mention that tool as well or those tools we'll definitely include the link to your website in the show notes so people can get there and and utilize those tools or contact you with any questions it's it's really cool that you're um you know so open with your time and being a resource for people but i'm sure that it comes back to you tenfold in terms of the business that you well we're doing pretty well in there right now that's for sure (laughs) yeah she does good and i love adding her i've added her to conference calls with clients sometimes sometimes we ourselves are competing for the business i mean the, the clients talking to multiple realtors and I love the opportunity to get Toya on the phone and whether it's a conference call or get them in touch. And she's such a she's so knowledgeable and such a articulate speaker in regards to passing along the information that it really does give you a competitive advantage and helps me in, in what I'm trying to do. Toya, let's get your phone number out there with a the great 1031 for last oh, sure. <laughs> so that so that our listeners can get in touch with you if they have further questions. So the phone number at the office. 503 748 1031. 503 
748-1031. Phones are ringing off the hook right now. (laughs) I bet. Especially with all the rules and regulations that the city of Florida. Oh, my gosh. That's right. Well, it's tax law. It's tax law. So there's no way anybody could, you know, really know all the tricks of this particular trade without putting the phone call, putting a phone call through to us. So, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's it's very murky waters. You need somebody to help you navigate them. Yes, it is. That's uh, what I have to say about that. So, all right. Well, hey. We really appreciate you joining us, Toya. This was a really, I think, a great interview. And I, you know, it was self-serving for me. I got a lot of questions answered that I did not know the answers to previously. I'm sure a lot of our listeners were able to benefit from that as well. And, you know, I'm sure Steve also enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Toya. It's it's wonderful to chat with you again today. And it was an honor to have you on the show. Great. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah, it's our pleasure. And, you know, maybe we'll have you back sometime. Love it. All right, guys, this is episode uh, 62 of the Portland Real Estate Podcast. Signing off. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks again for listening to our show. And make sure to tune in next week for another great episode of the Portland Real Estate Podcast.